Now, John, we were just interviewing James Dorney there about the attacks on British forces through that strip of Dublin from Camden Street up to Angel Street, Georgia Street direction. Could you tell us something about the makeup of the IRA in Dublin at that set of time? If you trace it from the split in the Irish Volunteers in 1914 up until uh, 1921, the social profile of the IRA is generally uh, young, first of all, and they get younger. I mean, they're the average volunteer in the Easter Rising is in his late 20s. And by the time of the truce, he's in his very early 20s or late teens. And in the Civil War, they're even younger again. As regards their social background, most of them, again, there's a kind of a coming down, if you like. In the Easter Rising, most of them are skilled workers from that kind of background. And increasingly, you're, they're attracting younger and unskilled men, the rank and file. Now, the other, the interesting thing about the IRA is that in the officers, you generally have skilled workers or white-collar workers, the middle classes. So there's an interesting class thing in the IRA where it sort of mirrors Irish society rather than being a class-conscious organisation. And how is the IRA divided in Dublin in terms of different units and different responsibilities? The Volunteers, remember, was founded, first of all, as sort of a, a parading army, in a way, at the start. And later on, viewed as almost a kind of Irish regular army in, in waiting. So it has this structure, which in guerrilla warfare is, is not necessarily reflecting reality. But there's four battalions, there's two north of the Liffey, there's two south of the Liffey. The decision is taken really by Michael Collins and Richard Mulcahy in 1919 to, to use violence, to use assassinations. And I don't mean to say that there was not also British pressure, but a decision was taken that they were going to use, they were going to use violence in a, at first a very surgical way. They were going to assassinate people. They were going to assassinate the G Division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, the detectives. They were going to assassinate British intelligence. They were going to assassinate also people who were investigating things like the Dáil Loan. The guy who was investigating that was, was shot on a tram. But anyway, they formed the squad, the assassination unit of the IRA, to do that, to assassinate people. And initially that was sort of the fighting unit of the Dublin IRA. As things developed, they needed a combat unit and they formed, as James has talked about, they formed the ASU. And there was a central ASU. There was also ASUs in each battalion area. So there was basically company guys who did the fighting. Fighting in this context means ambushes, it means grenades, it means revolvers. It doesn't mean a stand-up fight. There were specific orders that they were not to do this. Because Collins had been in the Easter Rising, so at Mulcahy, they were very aware of what would happen if they were drawn to a stand-up fight, that they had limited amount of weapons, limited amount of volunteers, and that they'd be used up very quickly. Although the propaganda value might be good, they would be captured or killed if they got involved in a stand-up fight. And in the only occasion when there was several hundred volunteers involved in an action, as in the Customs House raid, that's of course what happened. There was four of them killed. And there was nearly 100 captured, I think 70 or 80, but... Most of those volunteers who were involved in that action, the burning of the customs house, the burning of the centre of local government, which was obviously a great propaganda stroke, but most of the people who were involved in that were not actually armed. There wasn't enough arms in Dublin to go around. So more or less that was how the IRA was organised. As James was talking there beforehand about uh, civilian casualties, it's also an area that you've looked at quite quite a bit. And if we were to take the War of Independence and the Civil War together, what type of operations continued on through that period in Dublin and what was the effect on civilian casualties in Dublin? Yeah, well, what's interesting about this is that this has only started to be researched very, very recently. I mean, uh, know Halpin, whom we interviewed uh, the other week, has been doing a study and he's found 320 dead in Dublin for the War of Independence alone. And um, by a very rough count, uh, I have, I think, a little bit less than 200 in the Civil War. Now, it's it's not much more than that. It might be a little bit less. But that's about 500 over roughly two, three years. You know, it's roughly from December 1920 or November 1920 when it starts getting very violent in Dublin up until the middle of 1923. So that's short of three years. Um, So it's about 500 dead. There's also a significant number of wounded and roughly half of them, or possibly a little bit more than half, are civilians. How are they killed? How are they hit? They're hit usually in these street ambushes, which, as he said, 
we do find more or less consistent without, throughout the period. Kind of reckless actions on the whole. You throw a, a grenade at a passing lorry, you fire some shots with a revolver and you try to get away. Is the standard IRA action of these years, both in the War of Independence and in the Civil War. And ironically, of course, some of the people who were on the receiving end in the Civil War had been the ones carrying it out in the, in the earlier period. To those type of uh, ambushes from the IRA during the War of Independence and the anti-treaty IRA during the Civil War, could you compare the response of the British government during the War of Independence to the response of the provisional government during the Civil War to very similar type of tactics? It's an obvious thing to say, but obviously one came first and the other one came after and they could learn the lessons of what had gone before. So that, that makes a difference. It also makes a difference that the provisional government or the free state government, the pro-treaty side, were in the main former IRA people, right? The military command had been in the IRA. Um, Charlie Dalton in military intelligence. Tom Ennis, who was the head of the uh, National Army, Dublin Brigade. All ex-IRA men, they knew who the people they were trying to get were for the most part, although some of them had been too young to be in the War of Independence, but certainly their leaders, the likes of Ernie O'Malley. And Oscar Trainer, both of whom were picked up fairly early on, had been prominent in the IRA. And the great success that the Free State side had in the Civil War was that they knew where to find people, where to pick them up, who they were, and they arrested a great number of them. I mean, we talk a lot about the atrocities of the Civil War, and there were lots of atrocities and assassinations, but actually the most common by far experience of an anti-treaty fighter in the Civil War is arrest, mostly while unarmed, mostly while surprised. And okay, occasionally some, some of them were shot, but mostly they were arrested. Around 12,000 were arrested. I don't have the figure in Dublin, but it's the figure is quite high. I mean, it's certainly over a 1,000 anti-treaty people arrested in Dublin. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the Free State is considerably more ruthless than the British. The British um, executed, I think the number is 14 um, people in the War of Independence officially. There were obviously a lot more people taken out just and shot by the auxiliaries and people like that, including in Dublin. 